0: in the book of Acts, and as long as you see my face up here, I think we'll probably still be in the book of Acts. But uh, we are also keeping in prayer Josh and Heather uh, this week as they prepare to come join us next week to candidate as senior pastor of the church. So be sure and pray for them, but pray for the church as well. This is a great time. This is a great time for all of us. So keep them in prayer this week. Uh, usually when, when people step out in faith and try to do things that the Lord wants them to do, uh, the enemy attacks. So be aware of that. Don't let him do it. Okay? Uh, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Um, the, the title slide up there says Struggle for Power. This was the original title I had for today's message. And I changed it. Um, and the outline, I believe, it, it calls it, With all with God All Things Are Possible. I guess that kind of tips you off as to who wins the power struggle. But uh, a lot of times we, we we use the word impossible, and we use it in a non-literal sense. We use it in situations where uh, solutions seem to be limited, but once in a while we encounter what might be a, a, a truly impossible situation like Peter did when he was put into prison. And those are situations where God's power is best seen, because impossible is only impossible with us. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Impossible situations seem to come about fairly frequently in life. I, I'm not sure why that is. But they, they seem to be frequent at least until a solution appears, and we deem the solution is no longer impossible. In Acts chapter 12, we, we see a seemingly impossible situation until God breaks through And solves that particular crisis. That's what I hope that we learn from today's time in the book of Acts. Is that with God, all things are possible. Even, and maybe especially, in impossible situations. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, we see God's power is displayed in impossible situations. And there's more than one impossible situation that came up after the Gentiles were welcomed into the church. So we're going to spend a couple minutes and just look at a few of them. First of all, we'll look at Herod's plan here in verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now this first situation involves Herod Agrippa... Uh, who reigns, there are varying estimates, between 37 and 41 A.D. until 44 A.D. And he is the grandson of Herod the Great, whom we read about in the New Testament, about the time of Christ. And uh, Herod the Great had fled Rome for Palestine, or Herod Agrippa had rather, had fled Palestine for Rome, and he ran up some significant debt there got himself into trouble. And then he made a few careless comments and got himself imprisoned by Emperor Tiberius. But when Tiberius died, he found a way to be released from prison and eventually was made ruler of northern Palestine. Now, with an already shaky relationship with Rome, Agrippa tried to curry favor with Rome. And one of the ways he chose to do that was by persecuting this new church. In verse 1, it calls it laying violent hands on them. The New King James calls it harassing the new church. And as we see in verse 2, both descriptions were accurate. And in verse 2, we see that second impossible situation, Herod's prosecution of James. 12.2 says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, in Matthew chapter 4, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. Later in this chapter, in verse 17, there is another reference to James, but that is James, the half-brother of Jesus, a different James. In addition to trying to gain favor with Rome, Herod likely assumed that by killing one of the Jerusalem church leaders, this this new band of leaders, would probably serve to subdue the rest of that church, as well as please the Jewish leaders. And then we find in verse 3, as they proceed against Peter, that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When Agrippa found that persecuting the church did seem to please the Jewish leaders, Herod he was emboldened then to uh, and decided to take Peter as well. And Peter, as you know, was the he was kind of the head of the church. But we find out also this was during the days of unleavened bread, the feast following Passover. So rather than anger and stir up the people during the festival, he decided to put Peter in prison for safekeeping until after the festival. The feast was over. But he had to consider Peter's past record. You might say, what record is that? Well, Herod was a little concerned about Peter uh, and his history of having escaped from prison. (laughs) If you remember in Acts 5, Peter and John were thrown into prison. And they somehow got out and went right back to preaching. That incident, in that incident, an angel of the Lord had appeared at the doors of the prison and opened them and set him and John free. And again, they went right back to preaching at the temple. And considering Peter's history of prison breaks, Herod needed to take steps to make sure that he didn't do the same thing here. So he he provided for some extraordinary protection of Peter. Verses 4 to 6. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter was turned over to four squads of soldiers. Each squad was four soldiers. So there's at least 16 soldiers rotating in their guarding of Peter during his imprisonment. And at all times, even in his sleep, Peter was chained to two soldiers with two others guarding the doors. Clearly... Herod didn't want to lose this prisoner. And then we see Herod's Passover promise in verse 4b, if you will. It says he was intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, the first time I ever read this, I thought, what does it mean bring him out to the people? And I could see this picture of him bringing him out before the people, just like Jesus had been brought out before the people. On display. So it kind of, I don't know, gave people the impression that he was a powerful guy. But in reading and studying, I found it a little differently. And Eugene Peterson's The Message offers some pretty clear insight here as to what Herod's thoughts were. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read you the first four verses of chapter 12 from The Message. It says, That's when King Herod got it into his head to go after some of the church members. He murdered James, John's brother, when he saw how much it raised his popularity ratings with the Jews, he arrested Peter, all this during the Passover week, mind you, and had him thrown in jail, putting four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. He was planning a public lynching after Passover. It was his intention to take Peter out, not just embarrass him, not just persecute the church a little bit, his plan was to take Peter out. With so many zealous Jews in town for the feast, it was an opportune time, really, for Herod to arrest Peter. Again, it says his intention was to bring him out to the people following the feast, uh, the feast that began the week immediately following the day of Passover. And he was, probably, he was planning to bring him out for public trial and execution. I suppose you might call that an impossible situation that Peter was facing, that even the church was facing. It was impossible because they could do nothing about it. They couldn't overpower the four squads of soldiers that the Romans had, that Herod had put around him. It was just the sort of situation where God's power is best demonstrated. Now, maybe we don't often get to see that kind of God's power at work. Because frankly, we we live pretty safe lives, don't we? You know, by and large, our biggest threat maybe is the fire going on right now. We aren't faced on a regular basis with being persecuted to the point of being imprisoned and being held over for execution. But Peter was. We don't, maybe we don't often attempt anything that's big enough or risky enough To need God's power. We don't need God to step in and make it happen. But that wasn't the case here for Peter in the first century church. They seemed to continually find themselves in situations that were completely outside their own sphere of power and influence. Only God could rescue Peter. It puts me in mind of a I don't know if it was a philosophy of ministry or a life's motto or just a favorite saying of one of my pastors in the past. He liked to encourage the congregation to step out in faith and do something. And he would say, attempt something so impossible that unless God is in it, it's doomed to fail. And that's something that stuck with me ever since I first heard him say it. Which is, I don't know, probably 25 years ago now. But there was something stronger than Herod's army at work here God's power through interceding saints. That is, through prayer. The church had no other option, so they turned to the only power that was available to them the only power they truly needed, the power of prayer. Now, maybe sometimes God allows us to get in to impossible situations in order to force us to our knees, (laughs) to force us to turn to him in prayer. Otherwise, we may not do that. We tend to try and operate in our own power a lot, don't we? Notice here, though, that their prayer, first of all, was united in verse 5. It says, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church, This verse 5 tells us that prayer is taking place. But verse 12 also gives us a little bit clearer image. It says many were gathered together and were praying. And they were doing so in the home of Mary, mother of John Mark. And there is power when many are gathered together in prayer. Now, I don't know exactly how to quantify many. But I'm going to guess it's at least three. And when people gather together in his name and pray, there is incredible power to bear. Their power here was not only united, but in the King James, it was also constant or unceasing. Again, verse 5 says, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. We'll see in a moment that uh, Peter did get out of prison. And when he showed up at Mary's, guess what he found they were doing? They were praying for him. Now, a lot of scholars, in fact, most scholars I think agree and speculate, Peter was released in the very early hours of the morning, which would have meant that the church had to have been praying all night for him when he finally got there. But theirs was also urgent prayer. So Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered for, to God for him by the church. Remember, Luke is the author of this book, the book of Acts. And the word he uses for constant prayer in verse 5 is ectenos. It's a medical term, because Luke was a doctor. So that shouldn't surprise you. But it was a term that meant, uh, referred to the stretching of a muscle to its limits. Extend, ekstenos. Now as you read this verse in the ESV you'll see it's translated earnest prayer which is also a good way to translate the prayer that was offered here constant and earnest stretching the saints to their limits in prayer stretching their faith making them step forward now maybe I'm too hard on us too critical but frankly I don't I doubt that the church today finds itself praying that way very much constantly and earnestly over very many issues. Again, it's seldom we find ourselves that short of resources. Because we're, we're pretty tough, aren't we? <laughs> At least we like to think we are. So we try, by our own nature, we try to do everything in our own power until we're finally beaten to the point where we realize we're not all that strong and that tough, and we don't have any power outside of him. We can't do it alone. Finally, verse 5 shows us that the prayer was unconditional. There were no strings attached to the church's prayer for Peter here. They didn't pray, God, if you'll just do this for us, we'll do that for you. They just prayed to the only person who could affect this life and death situation for their friend and brother, Peter. Their prayer was totally unconditional. Lord, please rescue our dear friend, Peter, and keep him from death. Was it? The certainty of prayer is that God is in charge. God is sovereign. And that sovereignty is reflected in his answers to prayer. So we see God's power in infinite sovereignty in verses six and seven and verse ten. God is sovereign in the elective application of his power, verse seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. (laughs) I love that picture. God sent an angel to rescue Peter from, from prison. The angel led him out of prison, past the guards and into the street, and then disappeared. That was it. Peter didn't, probably didn't even realize at first that what was happening to him was real. He might have thought it was a dream. And often when studying this passage, people, people ask me about Peter. Says, says, okay, why was Peter rescued? And why was James murdered? Why did James have to die? And I, I can look him right in the eye and say, I don't know. I'm not God. God made a sovereign decision that it was time for James to come to him. And Peter was to be freed from prison. When we pray, that's something that we have to keep in mind. Of course, when we pray, we pray our heart's desires, don't we? God wants us to pour out our heart's desires to him. But at the same time, we have to remember that he's in charge of the answers to prayer. See, we don't pray to change God's mind, do we? We pray to God for him to change our mind, to line up with his will. That's what we pray for. That's why a lot of times, if you hear somebody praying for somebody who's, who's critically ill in the hospital, and, and the family thinks he's going to come in and just pray for healing, and whoever it is, if it's, if it's me, it's the pastor, it prays, yes, that's my, that's my heart's desire, is for them to be healed. But Lord, we pray for your will in this life. And if it be your will that they be healed of this terrible disease, then they'll be able to get up and walk out of here. We pray for God's will to be done. God's also sovereign in the executive use of his power. In verse 6, Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter had been in prison for about a week. And the night before he's to be executed, God sent his angel to Peter's rescue. Here's another question we ask frequently. Why did God wait until the last minute? Does it seem to you sometimes God waits to the last minute to answer your prayer? I'm preaching to myself here because I do that. I want God to tell me his will weeks in advance so I can plan. He just doesn't always do that. In fact, he rarely does that. It seems, though, that it's often his his way to let us work through the panic and then just kind of settle into trusting him before we're saved from the impossible situation that we think we're in. Now, I would imagine that Peter grew significantly during this period of time, especially during this week that he was in prison. And so did the church that was praying for him. God exercises his sovereign power in his way, in his time. And he knows what time is best, doesn't he? One of my favorite phrases from scripture is, in the fullness of time. That usually is heard around Christmas time when we talk about God bringing his son to earth in the form of a baby. And in the fullness of time. And I always wondered what that meant. And then I found out it meant when God's good and ready. But he knows what time is best for his will to be accomplished. Finally, God is sovereign in the economy. Of his power. Verse 10 When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Did you notice the angel that was sent by God didn't hang around any longer than was absolutely necessary? He got Peter out of prison, got him past the guards, got him through the gate and on the right street to Mary's house, and then he was gone. He did exactly what God told him to do and then was gone. See, God does for us what we cannot do. But he doesn't do what we can do for us. He does what we need him to do. Not what we'd like him to do. (laughs) Well, already I'm only halfway through and I'm at my so what? So what? God's power is a demonstration of individual spirituality. Here's what I mean. Verse 6 and verses 12 to 19 is where it's demonstrated. But in every impossible situation... There are different people, different personalities, unique personalities at work. And God's sovereignty considers each and every one of them. And there are at least a half a dozen examples of that here in this, in this story. First, notice that Peter was asleep. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. After a week in jail, the night before he was likely to be executed... He was sawing logs. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not sure I could have been asleep, especially chained to a couple of other guys, knowing that in a few short hours I'm supposed to be executed. And yet, here was Peter asleep. But then again, Peter had a history of being able to fall asleep in weird situations. He fell asleep in the garden, didn't he? Three times. and maybe he just had an amazing ability to trust the Lord like stepping out of a boat onto the water no wonder he was able to write later in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you hmm. secondly the other second example here is young Rhoda and her over excitement Verses 12 to 14, when he realized this in verse 11, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. That's a cute picture. Peter's knocking at the gate, and Rhoda comes to the gate and says, Who who is it? And he says, It's me, Peter. (gasps) And she's excited, and she runs in and tells the church, Peter's at the gate. The church had been praying all night now for Peter and for his release. Rhoda failed to process the fact that the prayers had been answered. But still God was sovereign over her excitement, and his plan takes everyone and everything into consideration. It brought us to the third example. The Christians, the believers, were amazed. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But mentioning to them, or motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Rhoda was so excited to see Peter. She missed the fact that the church's prayers that whole night, that whole week, had been answered right before her eyes. The rest of the group could have used a little bit more faith as well. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Again, they'd been praying all week. For Peter's release, and they couldn't believe that, or wouldn't believe, that God might have really delivered him. So when Rhoda insisted it was Peter's voice that, th- that she heard, they thought the worst. They said, No, it's his angel. It kind of puts me in mind, I have to, pardon me for taking a rabbit trail here, but this reminds me a lot of 1989. The West had been praying for 70 years. That the Berlin Wall would be coming down, that the Iron Curtain would go away. So, but no one was more incredulous than the Western Church when the wall actually fell and the curtain was gone. And I was involved with Slavic Gospel Association a few years after that. And the president of the association says, Yeah, we were all standing there thinking, <gasps> The wall's down. We gotta run in now and save those people. Well, there might have been an iron curtain up there, but God wasn't. He was behind the curtain. He was alive and well in Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and all of those nations. All that time. But we had a hard time believing the wall had come down. Even though we'd been praying for it for 70 years. Well, back to his angel. At that time, in Judaism... There was a traditional belief, it wasn't a biblical belief, but it was was a traditional belief that every person had a guardian angel with them at all times. And if the person died, that guardian angel would take on the appearance of the one who had died. So when they told Rhoda, no, it's his angel, what they were saying was, no, we're certain Peter's dead. And that's his angel standing out there at the gate. We have to give the church credit for gathering together and praying earnestly and constantly and unitedly and all of those things that we talked about for Peter's deliverance. But we'd like to expect that they would have a little bit more confidence in God's answer to their prayer. But then again, they didn't have all of the uh, the evidence and the experience of God's answering prayer that we have today really do we don't we have plenty of evidence don't we see prayers answered i gotta say every day constantly sometimes we just don't give them credit for being god's work they didn't have all that experience they were astonished when they finally gave in to doubt and opened the door and found Peter actually standing there. Maybe it's a bit comforting for us to know that we aren't the only ones who have prayed, even with a lack of faith. But God is also sovereign over our weak faith. Is he not? He uses our prayers in spite of our weaknesses. He sometimes acts in spite of us, rather than because of us. Peter gives them the account of his deliverance and tells them to take the news back to James, Jesus', Jesus half-brother. And then, and then Peter basically disappears from the book of Acts, except for a brief mention in chapter 15 later at the Jerusalem Council. And he's not mentioned again in Luke's history of the early church. And we spoke of this before. Peter is the dominant character in the first part of the book of Acts, and then Paul becomes the dominant in the book. The fourth example of what we're talking here is that soldiers were afraid. Verse 18 says, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Well, probably not. You can just imagine the hubbub among them when they discovered Peter was gone. Because Roman law at that time provided for the fact that any prison guard who allowed a prisoner to escape was then liable to the same sentence as the escaped prisoner. In this case, that meant death. Because Peter had essentially been sentenced to death. They knew they would uh, have to face Herod over this thing. And Herod, he had quite the reputation as a ruthless leader and that they were certain he would have no compunction over taking out a few guards for an escaped prisoner and executing 16 soldiers for making him look foolish would be reasonable in his eyes in verses 19 to 23 we found out their fears are well-founded Herod was angry and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. on an appointed day, Herod put his royal or put on his royal robes took his seat up on the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now there's an epitaph I sure don't want to see on my gravestone. (laughs) The soldiers were questioned and found guilty and put to death. Now, it was no big deal. Herod had already killed his wife and his son because he saw them as threats to his throne. Herod Agrippa apparently valued human life, no human life except his own. And he could have shown mercy to the soldiers because he was a Jewish king, not a Roman king. But he didn't. Luke offers us a a small postscript here, a P.S. about Herod, that Herod left Jerusalem went to Caesarea about a year later to settle some political problem that he had down there because of a famine. In verses 21 and 22, it tells us how he was arrayed in this royal robe and royal dress. He gave his speech to the people, and they were calling him a god. Jewish historian Flavius Josephus writes of the event, and he gave us some background details. If you don't mind, I'm going to give those to you. It says, Herod put on a garment made holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at a time uh, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out that he was a God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us. For although we have hitherto referenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. In verse 23 of Luke's account here though, Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. Luke's history also does reflect that Herod lived five days before he succumbed. Why does Luke give us this postscript here? I would assume it's presumably to remind us that God is sovereign over justice. Wickedness will be punished either now or at God's throne. But it will be punished. The sixth example here, though, is the church itself. The church was advancing, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Along with all the other individual responses to this situation, and and maybe just to top them all off, the church was moving forward. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, or verse 18, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And Acts 12, 24 provides us evidence of that fact. In spite of all that had happened to Peter, the word of God increased and multiplied. Try to condense this thing a little bit. At the beginning of the chapter... Herod is on the rampage. The church is being persecuted and harassed. James is dead. Peter's in prison. And the chapter closes with Herod dead. Peter's free. And the word of God is increasing and multiplying. Amen. Whew. Evidence that is noted in John, 1 John 4.4. 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world when you face an impossible situation and if you haven't you will call to mind this story of Peter and his deliverance by the angel of the Lord remember that God is at work we've had a movie recently that says God is not dead right we believe that We better. God is not only alive, He is busy. He's doing what God does. He's working to bring about what is best for us, best for His glory, best for creation. His plan. His plan is not just good, it's the best. And His plan is being worked. We need to remember that prayer links our situations to God's sovereignty. Again, our prayers are not to change His mind. Our prayers are that He will change ours, to be in lockstep with His will. God works in response to prayer for reasons we can't explain. But we can count on this. He is sovereign. He can do whatever he wills. And he's not obligated to do what we will. (laughs) But his will is also often tied to prayer. So let me just encourage you this morning. Let God be the God of the possible. And then your faith will grow best. His power will be displayed the best. And remember that with God, all things are possible. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, it's entertaining and instructive to be in your word. It's entertaining to see sometimes how you have even a sense of humor in the irony of the way that you handle some things, differently than we would think that it might be handled. And yet we know that the things will be handled the way you will that they be handled. Lord, we're grateful for your sovereignty. We're glad you're in charge because if we were in charge, we'd have it so messed up. So, Lord, I just pray this morning each of us would be n- not only willing, but anxious to submit to your sovereignty. Not to fight it. Resistance is futile. Your will will be done. Your will is sovereign. Let us learn to live in in an attitude of prayer that asks for your sovereign will to be done in our lives. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has never submitted themselves to your saving grace, Inviting you in to be the Lord of their life and Savior of their life. I pray that they will do that today and see your sovereignty in their lives. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a mighty, mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.